without applause. A man who raised the shield of faith, protecting what is pure, whose love is tough and gentle, a man whose word is sure. God doesn't need an orator who knows just what to say. He doesn't need authorities to reason him away. He doesn't need an army to guarantee a win. He just needs a few good men. Men full of compassion who laugh and love and cry. Men who face eternity and aren't afraid to die. Men who fight for freedom and honor once again. He just needs a few good men. He calls the broken derelict whose life has been renewed. He calls the one who has the strength to stand up for the truth. Enlistment lines are open, and he wants you to come in. He just needs a few good men. Men full of compassion, who laugh and love and cry. Men who'll face eternity and aren't afraid to die. Men who'll fight for freedom and honor once again. He just needs a few good men. Men full of compassion who laugh and love and cry. Men who'll face eternity and aren't afraid to die. Men who'll fight for freedom and honor moving in the morning, I tell you. All right, let's take our Bibles, turn to John, Gospel of John, chapter 3. John, chapter 3. Of course, here in John, chapter 3, we're going to be reminded in this chapter of a man who was faithful in John the Baptist. And uh, we're going to see in our text as we read here this morning that John the Baptist's disciples, the followers of John the Baptist, there comes a point where they begin to complain a little bit about Jesus, actually. And they come to John the Baptist, and they're frustrated because, in their opinion, Jesus has more followers than John the Baptist does. And, uh, and John the Baptist was a faithful witness, as we've already seen in our study of the Gospel of John. And certainly in this passage, it's no different and uh, he makes the statement that Jesus must increase and that he, John the Baptist, should decrease. That's 
That, that's counterculture. That goes against our flesh. That we would decrease anywhere. It goes against our flesh. And John the Baptist indeed was a faithful man. As we're studying here the Gospel of John thus far, we are seeing that Jesus' enemies, and we'll see this as we continue our study, Jesus' enemies really throughout his entire life were the religious leaders of Israel. Think about that. Remember, we've already studied in John chapter 1, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. He didn't want anything to do with him. And primarily, it was the religious leaders of Israel. And here, here's Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the one prophesied throughout the Old Testament, the one that Israel had been waiting for for all of these years, and Jesus' greatest enemies were the religious teachers of Israel, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the rabbis. And to a, very, to a great degree, these men grew to hate Jesus with everything that they had. And that is why they would arrest him at night, and they would break their own laws to try him during the night. They wanted him dead. And uh, their hatred for him, as, we see, as we'll see through our study, continued to grow. But there was one Pharisee, and we've already studied him a little bit, but there was fun, one Pharisee, who sought Jesus out with a very, very profound ache in his heart. And his name was Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a religious man. He would have been a conservative man. He would have been a Bible scholar. He would have known much of the Old Testament. He was a teacher. But Nicodemus was full of anxiety. And he was full of fear. And he was full of dread. And why? Why was he full of dread? And the answer to that question is because he was a hypocrite. And he knew it. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites repeatedly. In fact, you remember he called them whited sepulchers or whitewashed tombs who look good on the outside, have some decoration and some ornaments, so to speak. You look good on the outside, but on the inside, you know you're not genuine. And that's what Nicodemus was. He looked good on the outside. He was a religious man. He would have had the respect of most of the people in Israel. Some historians say that Nicodemus was the primary teacher at that time. I don't know that. The Bible doesn't say that. Some historians say that Nicodemus was the, one of the third most wealthy men in Jerusalem at that time. I don't know that either. The Bible doesn't say that. But whatever the case, whether those things are true about Nicodemus or not, we do know from the Lord Jesus Christ and his word that Nicodemus was a religious man. He would have had some popularity. He would have had the respect of many people. But Nicodemus was a hypocrite. And by the way, hypocrites know when they're hypocrites. Because they know their own hearts. And Jesus, in his word, actually calls the Pharisees sons of hell who made more sons of hell. Because of their teaching, they were leading others to hell with them. And one of those sons of hell was this burdened man named Nicodemus. And he was a very important figure, but he had a huge, huge fear in his heart. And the, and the reason for that was because he did not have assurance of heaven. 
He didn't believe that he was reconciled to God. He was full of angst and fear, and he came to Jesus this particular night in the darkness of night, hoping that Jesus might be able to tell him what was missing in his life after all that he had done. He was convinced that Jesus was a teacher sent from God. Look at our text, John chapter 3, and I'm going to begin reading in verse number 16. I'm going to read all the way down through verse 36. John chapter 3, beginning in verse number 16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, and that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. After these things came Jesus and his disciples unto the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. Now in chapter 4, it's going to tell us that it seems here in verse 22 that Jesus was the one doing the baptizing, but chapter 4 is going to give us some clarity that Jesus indeed was not the one doing the baptizing, but his disciples were, verse 23. And John, the Baptist, also was baptizing in Anon near to Salem, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. Now I want to pause for just a moment here. Uh, this idea of baptism, and I'm not going to spend much time on this this morning, but this idea of baptism. In our day-to-day, um, some people are sprinkled, sometimes water is poured, sometimes even infants, water is sprinkled on on infants, and they call it infant baptism. Um, I want you to know something from the Word of God. The word baptize here comes from a Greek word, baptizo, and the word baptizo, we get our English word baptism, or baptize from it, means to immerse, okay, to submerge. So someone can say, I've been baptized, I've been sprinkled, they can say that, but that would not be biblically accurate. Do you see that? Okay, it's important. Um, and, and when we talk about things like this, or really anything in our lives, culture changes, society change, changes, even our words change. Words can change. Uh, we change the meaning of words, but the Bible doesn't change, okay? And it's very important. We're not just to go along with the flow of culture, uh, we are to follow the Word of God. And so, maybe you're here this morning and you'd say, you know what, maybe you've said for all of your life that you've been baptized, but you're referring back to a time in your life where you were sprinkled, or maybe water was poured on you, and maybe there was a priest there in your family, and maybe you have a certificate saying that you've been baptized. But if you've not been immersed, baptized biblically, you really haven't been baptized, okay? And you need to know that. So here we have Jesus and his disciples, they're baptizing in Judea. In verse 23, here in Salem, John the Baptist is baptizing. And these two baptisms, uh, particularly John the Baptist, was different. John the Baptist's baptism was one of 
repentance and purity. Okay? One of repentance and purity. In verse 24, it goes on, it says, For John was not yet cast into prison. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples, some concerns between his disciples and the Jews about purifying. And this was very important to the Jews. Um, And, of course, purity is very important to the Lord. But this idea of washing and purification was something that was a part of Jewish culture in that day. It was right. God had given very clear instruction about some of these things. When um, I was visiting Israel, we was to the south of the city of the Temple Mount of Jerusalem there. They were doing some excavating, and they had uncovered many different baptismal pools. And literally, they had carved out of the rock steps going down to the point where the baptismal tank would be taller than me, probably about, I'd say, 8 to 10 feet deep. And, and men, they, and they had dozens and dozens of these tanks that they were uncovering, and they would fill them with water. And uh, before the people would make their way up onto the Temple Mount to go into the temple to worship the Lord, they would, the men with men, women with women, they would walk down into the water, down the steps, they would be submersed, and then they would walk out the other side. And it was ritualistic cleansing, but purity, nonetheless, was something that was important. And here, John the Baptist's disciples, his followers, and some of the Jews are having a discussion about purifying. And I don't think it was a polite, um, I'll wait till you're done talking type of a discussion. That's not how things were done. Verse 26, And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, speaking about John the Baptist, he that was with me, he that was with thee, beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, so they're referring to Jesus. John had borne witness that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. They continue in the end of verse 26. Behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. And uh, is that a true statement? Did all men come to him? No. But from their opinion, from their perspective, there were more people following Jesus than there were people following John the Baptist. Now, Remember, we talked about this. Whose public ministry started first? John the Baptist or Jesus? John the Baptist. So John the Baptist had been at this longer than Jesus had. And here comes Jesus onto the scene. John the Baptist baptizes him, and he identifies him as the Messiah. Remember, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. This is the one. Remember, John the Baptist came first. And, uh, and now more people, according to the disciples of John the Baptist, are following Jesus. And there's some jealousy there. Now, should we be jealous of one another as God's people? Should we be jealous when a, a, another family in the congregation uh, is blessed of God in some particular way? Or maybe it's a particular ministry? Or maybe someone has a different set of talents than we do. Should we be jealous of them? Or sigh and... What if another church across town that's preaching the gospel is thriving and doing well? And uh, and maybe we're at a stage within this congregation where we're going through some purging and some maybe some chastening and maybe some uh, pruning by God, our Heavenly Father, which is by His grace, but nonetheless not enjoyable to go through. Should we be excited and thankful for what God is doing in another assembly? Yes or no? 
yes, we should. And John the Baptist, here, his disciples come to him, and they're a little concerned, and they're saying, everybody's coming to Jesus, it seems. Um, And look at verse number 27. John answered, and this is a very humble answer. John answered his disciples and said in verse 27, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Now that's a, that's a truth that applies to you and me. The Bible tells us that God causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. Even unbelievers would have nothing if God was not merciful and gracious to them. And John the Baptist, speaking of Jesus, tells them, and he says, a man can receive nothing except to be given him from heaven. And what he's telling his disciples is, this man, Jesus, the Messiah, the one that I have borne witness to, is receiving what God is giving him. Verse 28. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. And John doubles down on this. He says, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. But that I am sent before him. Verse 29. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice, And John says, this my joy therefore is fulfilled. And really what he's saying in verse 29 is, listen, I'm not the bridegroom, but I'm a friend of the bridegroom. I'm a friend of the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. And and, in Jewish weddings, as I've told you, that Jewish weddings would last, could last seven days, a week long. And and before that, through the betrothal period, you know, the, the bridegroom is engaged to the bride, but he's gone away to prepare a place for his bride, and he's making an addition onto his father's house, and he's saving money, and he's buying things. He's furnishing the house for the day of the wedding and the week of the wedding. And uh, when he was ready, when the bridegroom was ready, the groomsmen, the best man, they played a lot more important role back then than they do today. Most times today, the best man is holding the wedding ring and organizing pranks on his good friend. Uh, but, the, but the best man then had a lot more important uh, responsibilities. And when the bridegroom was ready to, for the wedding, the groomsman or the, the best man was responsible to, for communication between the bridegroom and the bride and helping get things organized and get everybody together and, uh, and he was the one who would communicate with everybody that the bridegroom was ready. He would get the word out. And, and what John the Baptist is saying is, I'm just, I'm just the, the best man. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. And it's just my, it's, I'm not him. And my joy is fulfilled because he is having, his ministry is what it is. Verse 30. Now he says this statement, and what a a humble statement. He must increase, but I decrease. That could be put on this pulpit. It'd do well for me, I would do well to remember that statement every time I step into this pulpit. I must decrease, he must increase. They don't need to see as much of you, Seth Ferguson, as they need to see of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that we all can be reminded of that every day when we go out into the highways and byways and into the workplace and in our homes. Oh, that our spouses would see less of us and more of Christ. Oh, that our children would see less of us and more of Christ. And so he says, I must 
He must increase, but I must decrease. Verse 31, he that cometh from above is above all. So we see the superiority of Christ in his statement there. He that is of the earth is earthly. He says Christ is above all. I'm just an earthen vessel. And John the Baptist says, and Paul, the apostle, talks about that later on. And I've talked to you about this. The Apostle Paul came to the realization that he was just an old, broken, worn-out, replaceable clay pot. That's what he was. John the Baptist had the same perspective. I'm replaceable. I need to decrease, but Christ needs to increase. And speaketh of the earth, he that cometh from above is above all. He makes that statement again, verse 32. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth. No man receiveth his testimony. Wow, what a couple of amazing statements there. In the beginning of verse 32 where he says, What he, Christ, hath seen and heard, that he testifieth. So Christ has been in heaven. He's seen heavenly things. He is God. He's testifying of God. And then look at what the end of verse 32 says. And no man receiveth his testimony. And what John the Baptist understood that his disciples did not understand was that relatively few people were receiving the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. Relatively few. Now, from the John the Baptist's disciples' perspective, they were kind of sulky, kind of pouty. Everybody's following Jesus. He's, they're baptizing more people than we are. You know, kind of self-absorbed a little bit here. John the Baptist knows the reality, and he says, you know, relatively few people are following Jesus. And that goes back to what we've already studied. He came unto his own, his own received him not. Very few, frankly, very few of the total population of Israel followed and believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 33, he that hath received his testimony hath set to, the, to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. That's an amazing statement. And John the Baptist was saying, God the Father didn't give Jesus a portion of the Spirit. The Lord Jesus Christ has the fullness of the Spirit of God. Verse, 30, verse 35, The Father loveth the Son and hath given all things into his hands. That's also an amazing statement. Uh, we could be in chapter 3, by the way, for like months. Okay, there's so much here. But... Some teach the idea that Jesus was less than God. Jesus was 100% God in human flesh. Jesus could have done whatever he wanted to do, and whatever he would have done would have been right. Verse 36, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. That's a glorious truth. Encouraging. He that believeth not... The Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. And that's a troubling thought. The person who has not believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the wrath of God is presently, already, not someday in the future, though that will be the case, but currently, the wrath of God is already on that person. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us, I pray. We've looked at much of this passage already. Help us to remember some of these truths we've just touched on. And help us, I pray, as we consider the rest of this passage this morning. In Jesus' name, I ask these things. Amen. Now, 
Um, <clears throat> when we're thinking about the message of Christianity, and I want to wrap up this, you know, John 3.16, probably the most popular, most well-known Bible verse in, in the world today, and yet so many people are unsaved. Uh, so, so many people do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And the message of Christianity has always been this, that everybody is born into this world a sinner. That everybody who is born into this world a sinner is separated from God, and they are headed for eternal hell. But God so loved the world that he gave his Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I love all of my children dearly, but all four of them were born into this world a sinner. Each one of them. And each one of them deserved death and hell for all of eternity. And the only way for them to escape eternal damnation and eternal separation from God and to escape the fire of hell, which is eternal, the only way for my four children to escape that is by believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. That is the only way. There is nothing else that they can do. And, and, you know, they could stand before the Lord someday and say, well, my daddy was a pastor. We were pastor's kids, or we went to Christian school, or we were homeschooled, or we were in the Iwana program, or we, we were religious, and I was baptized. And they could, the list can go on and on. But the only way to escape eternal judgment is to believe. Now, the truth of the message of Christianity is is that not only is there eternal hell and all are born into this world sinners separated from God, but there also is a place called heaven, a place of eternal joy, a, per, a place of bliss and peace and pleasure and satisfaction and fulfillment forever. So the question is, how does a person escape hell? Because we're all born into this world sinners separated from God by wicked works. How does a person escape hell and go to heaven? And the answer is simply by faith. By faith. Not by works. Not by anything of ourselves. Not by any of our, anything of our own doing. But by the grace of God. By believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is the message of Christianity. For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so it's not about our morality. It's not about our virtue. It's not about uh, your philanthropy. Or it's not about your ceremonies or your rituals or the religious activities. The only way to escape hell and enter heaven is by believing, believing by faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, faith, faith. Believing has always been God's way. A person recently asked me, how did the people in the Old Testament get saved? Well, they got saved by faith. That's how. They looked, they had to trust God, who he was, for the deliverance of their souls. And so in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, faith has always and only been God's way. It's always been by faith. Back in Genesis chapter 15, all the way back in Genesis 15 in verse number 6, we could go to the very father of the Jews, a man named Abram, and you read this. This is what it says in Genesis 15 and verse 6. 
And he believed in the Lord. And he, God, counted it to him, Abram, for righteousness. So it wasn't their, it wasn't their religion. It wasn't the rituals. It ultimately wasn't the sacrifices. It wasn't an unblemished lamb, even, of the Old Testament. It was faith. Now, a person's faith can be seen in what they do. What we believe, what we truly believe, can be evident in how we live our lives. But it wasn't ever about anything else other than faith. And all the Lord wanted out of Abraham was to declare him righteous. Uh, for, for God to declare Abraham righteous, all God needed was for Abraham to believe, to exercise faith in him. And Abraham did believe God, and for that, God gave Abraham his own righteousness. Think about that. God gave Abraham God's righteousness and God's covering and God's forgiving him of all sin and making him his eternal child and granting him everlasting life simply on the basis of faith. In Romans chapter 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul preaches and teaches on this and he expounds upon it. And we're told how that Abraham was justified. He was declared to be righteous by a holy God because he believed upon the Lord by faith. He was never baptized in water. Abraham was justified by faith. God declared him righteous because he believed. In Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, the prophet sums it up this way, the just shall live by his faith. We're talking about Old Testament here. The just or the justified shall live by his faith. Again, in Romans chapter 1, in Galatians chapter 3, in Hebrews chapter 10, they all say the exact same thing. The just shall live by faith. So righteousness comes by what? It comes by faith. Righteousness. Genuine righteousness. God-pleasing righteousness does not come by a set of standards or by keeping the law or attempting to keep the law comes by believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ, not by works. And Nicodemus should have known that God wanted faith. Nicodemus was a student of the Old Testament. He would have known about Abraham. He would have known the passage there in Habakkuk that I read to you. He knew these stories. He knew Genesis 15 and verse 6, that Abraham was justified by faith. Nicodemus also knew that God was the one who granted forgiveness and life to the sinner Nicodemus knew what Isaiah said, that if he would come to God, that God will wash away your sins and that God will make you clean. Nicodemus knew God was a Savior, but Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And he was devoted to a counterfeit religion. He was devoted, his whole life was devoted to something less than what God was asking. And Jesus, by the way, knew Nicodemus' heart through and through. Do you know that in this passage in chapter 3, did you, I don't know if you noticed it or not, I didn't bring any attention to this, but Nicodemus never asks a question of Jesus. He acknowledges, I know you're a teacher, come from God, because nobody except you to come from God can do these things. Nicodemus knew those things, but Nicodemus never asks a question, but Jesus, knowing his heart, gives him the answers to what he is seeking. How is it that you can have everlasting life? 
How is it that you can have the forgiveness of your sins? How is it that a man can have a, a peace with God? And Jesus is telling Nicodemus, it's by faith. It's by believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Plus nothing. Plus nothing. Jesus, as we've already studied, told Nicodemus he needed to have eternal life. Jesus told Nicodemus, you remember with the illustration that Jesus used from the Old Testament about the fiery serpents because the people of Israel had complained and the judgment of God came upon them and people began to die because they were being bitten by these fiery serpents and the people repented of their sin. But the people were sinners and the people were dying. And the people couldn't do anything to save themselves. And they knew that only God can deliver them. And they came back to Moses, who they'd been complaining about. And they'd been complaining against the Lord. And they say to Moses, we have been complaining. Forgive us. We've been complaining against you. And we've been forget- complaining against God. We've been sinning against you and sinning against God. And, and Moses goes to the Lord in prayer. And, and, Mo- and God tells Moses, take a, a pole and put on it a brazen serpent, a brazen fiery serpent, so that when the people, all they have to do, is look at that pole and they will be healed. They'll live. Look and live. There's a hymn, of, hymn about that. And what Jesus was teaching Nicodemus was not, you need to get a pole with a brazen serpent. and That wasn't Jesus' point. But Nicodemus knew that, knew that historic event well. What Jesus was saying was, Nicodemus, you're the sinner. Nicodemus, you're dying. Nicodemus, you can't save yourself. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. Now think about this. He's talking to a man who's been working his whole life to save himself. Only God can save you, Nicodemus. Believe in Christ alone. In verse number 15, that's what Jesus told him, right? That whosoever believeth in him, the Son of Man being lifted up at the end of verse 14, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And here again, Jesus is exposing for us, for our understanding, what Nicodemus was after. Nicodemus, the Jews knew about eternal life. They knew about everlasting life. They were not ignorant of this. Most people in our society are a bit ignorant about that concept. We live like there is no God and like there is no life to come and this is all we got to just live. The Jews knew better than that. Nicodemus longed for eternal life. And so Jesus tells him in verse 15, believe in Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 11 and verse 6 tells us, but without faith it is impossible to please him. Can't please God unless you believe upon him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And so many, many people in our day say, I believe in Jesus Depending on the conversation and how you enter a conversation, most, almost anybody will say that they believe in him. I don't have any statistics in front of me, but there are some, I'll, sometimes I'll read these polls that are taken about Christianity today in America. Whenever these polls are taken, it's amazing. I don't know who the people are, but it's amazing how many people say that they believe in God and they believe in Jesus. But as I mentioned to you last week, and we touched on this, there's a difference between a common faith, what I would define as common faith, and saving faith. It's one thing for me to give mental assent that God exists, that Jesus exists, 
you know, I can say the Bible is true, but I really haven't engaged my brain a whole lot on it, and my heart hasn't been engaged. It's one thing for me to agree that Jesus existed, but you know that even the demons, the Bible says even the demons believe that Jesus is the Christ. Listen to this passage in Luke 4 and verse 41. And the devils, the demons, also came out of many. Jesus was saving these people. And so the demons come out of these people. They're crying out, the demons, saying, this is what, listen to what the demons say. They say, thou art Christ, the Son of God. The demons know that Jesus was the Christ. And he, rebuking them, suffered them not to speak. And he could do that because he's God. For they knew that he was Christ. You see, even the demons know and agree that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So acknowledging Jesus or Christ intellectually and even agreeing in your heart with your whole heart is still not enough because saving faith is understanding that God cannot overlook or tolerate sin because God is holy. And saving faith is agreeing that you are a sinner. Agreeing with God that you are a sinner and that you deserve his condemnation because God is just and God cannot overlook sin. And for just a moment, and I don't encourage people to dwell on your sins, but think of your life. The payment for sin Death, eternal separation from God. I won't go back and re-preach that. We talked about it last week. Eternal separation from God. And the Bible very clearly tells us that that is a place called hell. It is not a pleasant place. It's not a place for parting. It's a place of eternal torment. And the greatest of the torment in hell, I believe, will be the creation has separated from the Creator for all of eternity. And it will be a place of tremendous torment, and of tremendous agony, and tremendous suffering forever. And it brings me no pleasure to talk about such a place, but that is a place that the Bible talks about. So, saving faith is understanding that God cannot overlook or tolerate your sin because he is holy. It is, saving faith is agreeing that you are a sinner that needs the Savior because God is just and he's going to judge your sin. And saving faith is choosing to depend and trust in Christ to forgive your sins and to give you his righteousness. Trust in Christ. Do you trust him? Are, we, are you willing to entrust yourself to him and say, God, I am a wicked, vile sinner and I deserve death and hell forever and ever. Would you tell me in your word that you love me? Anyway, despite my sin, God, would you take away my sin and save me from it? And Lord, would you give me your righteousness? That's saving faith. That's saving faith. And so God, when a person exercises saving faith, he takes away the hatred and he gives them love. And he takes away the lies and he gives them the truth. And he takes away the selfishness and he gives them selflessness. And he takes away the covetousness and he gives them contentment. And he takes away death. And he gives them eternal life. Look at verses 16 and 17 again. It says, For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. There's a hymn called The Love of God, and it talks about how great and marvelous the love of God is. It is a tremendous hymn. Love of God. It's not enough if all the oceans were made of ink. There wouldn't be enough ink to write all there is to write about the love of God. And so, who does God love? We see it in verse number 16. God so loved the world. The world, sinful mankind. That whosoever, he loved the whosoever. Now, by the way, this would have been shocking to Nicodemus. Whosoever. Nicodemus was a Jew. And there was bigotry in those days against the Gentiles and against the Samaritans. Nicodemus was a man who had sought to worship Jehovah God and devote his life and discipline his life and embracing ritual and standards, rules and laws. Why? Because he was different than everybody else on the face of the earth. He was a Jew. He was one of God's people. And that, that is true. There would have been some pride, and here he's told, whosoever. God loved the world, not just the Jews, but the whosoever. Nicodemus, maybe in his mind, might have thought, wait a minute, you mean to tell me that you don't have to come to the temple in Jerusalem? You don't have to keep my set of standards? And maybe there are some like that here this morning, and you'd say, you know what, wait a minute, wait a minute, Seth, uh, he loves whosoever? Maybe we'd be prone to think this morning, well, we're better than whosoever. Are we? Whosoever, that's who God loves. That's who attracts the attention of Almighty God. Those who have rebelled against him. We, in our sinful condition, were the motive of God's love. In 1 John 4 and verse 10, he says, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. So how much does God love us? We see that in verse 16 as well. God so loved, he so loved, that he gave his only begotten son. He loved us so much. In our sinful condition, he was willing to give his only son to die on the cross. And not just that, but he gave his only son, pure and spotless and holy, to become sin. To become our sin. To take all of my sin upon him. First, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he, God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us. Jesus, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This is how much he loves us. And, and, and what did God hope to accomplish by loving you and me and sending his only son to die on a cross? And I've told you before, while I have two sons, I don't think I would be willing to give either of them for anybody. And yet God gave his only son 
for us who hated him and lived our lives like he didn't exist and uh, lived in rebellion against him. And so the ministry of God's love was the salvation of sinful man. It says at the end of verse 16 that we should not perish but have everlasting life. So what did God hope to accomplish by loving you and me? Well, even though he knew our sinful condition, our rebellion against him and our disobedience and our hatred for God, he chose to give his son so that we would not perish, that we would not suffer what we rightly deserve, eternal death, but instead have everlasting life. And this is the love of God. Look at verse number 17 again. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And I can't help but noticing how blatantly plain it is in verse 17 that God wanted to save the world. He wanted to save you. He wanted to save me. Unlovely. Rebellious. Full of hatred soaked and saturated with sin and he wanted to save me his love motivated him to save us from his wrath the purpose of the messiah's coming was not condemnation it was not judgment you know the jews in this day expected the messiah to come and to judge all the other nations to set things right but their messiah did come and they rejected him And he wound up judging them and they being condemned. And he opened the gospel to the ends of the earth. And this, again, would have shocked Nicodemus. And by the way, the next time that the Lord Jesus Christ comes, he's going to come in judgment. But the first time he came, he came as a lamb to take our place on a cross. Look at verse number 18. We'll we'll close with this. So... Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Believe upon him alone. Receive his love. But then be careful not to reject the light of the world. Be careful not to reject the light of the world. Look at verse number 18, and I can't tell you how important this is, so let's read it. Verse 18, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The word already, I think, is the key in verse 18. Christ came in love to save because God in love sent him to save. Which means that you and I don't need to find another way to save ourselves. Jesus told Those who were close to him, he said this, quote, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Speaking of himself. So God is by nature a Savior. Christ, being God, is by nature a Savior. And so what should our response be? Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Right? That's the simple answer. Believe, that's all it takes, and all the charges against you are wiped out. No condemnation. This is how the Bible describes the salvation of God upon those who have believed upon Christ. No condemnation. Full pardon. Rescued from the curse of the law. Cleared from all guilt. Declared righteous. Granted eternal life. 
and never to be removed from God's hand. That's the salvation of God. What grace, what undeserved favor, what mercy, what tremendous and immense love. But on the other hand, if you don't believe in Christ, you have been judged already. And that's the point. Because you have not believed in the Son of God. Now consider what the word already means. People in the world, I think, typically think that if we do more good than bad, then God will overlook the bad. That's kind of how we think in our society today. But can I tell you something? How much good an unsaved person does is irrelevant. It means nothing. I'm not making this up. That's what this passage is saying. It's irrelevant for this reason. The judgment, the condemnation has already taken place. Why? We were born into this world, sinners. And there's no one counting your record to see if your good outweighs your bad. I'm talking about those who are unsaved. God is not keeping track of the unsaved as far as what they do good compared to what they do bad. He is not keeping track of that. He is not going to weigh the two against one another. And if a man's good works outweigh his bad works, then God's going to say, you know what, you're better than you are bad, and so I'm going to let you into heaven. That's not going to happen. The divine judge has already ruled. Now, he has not enacted the punishment yet. That will happen at the, judge, the great white throne judgment. But the divine judge has already ruled. The gavel has already come down. And a man who has not believed upon Jesus Christ is already, already condemned. They've already been sentenced to hell. A person who has not believed upon Jesus, do you not understand is already sentenced to hell where they are. And what has caused this condemnation that we read about in verse 18? Well, the answer is said, spoken to us in verse 18. Why is a person condemned already? Well, look at the end of verse 18. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's why. And that is the only reason. That is the only reason people die and go to hell. It's because they will not believe in the only begotten, upon the only begotten Son of God. That is the only reason. So a person is not going to be sent to hell for something that they did. Oh, they will be judged and held accountable for it. They will suffer for their works. They will suffer for the rebellion and disobedience. But you're not going to be sent to hell for something you did, but for something that you didn't do. And that is, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm telling you, this is critically important. Every sinner is already condemned, and the only way that that verdict can be reversed and the slate clean and the sinner forgiven is by believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the only way. And so it's important to remember this. What damns people to hell in the end is not some divine decree made by God or some deficient provision in the sacrifice of Christ or even because they sin and have broken God's law. 
That is not why people go to hell. According to verse 18, people go to hell because they will not believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I ask you this morning, do you have common faith? Or do you have saving faith? Nicodemus had common faith. He saw Jesus' miracles. He was impressed by Jesus. He was wowed by him. He was very impressed by Jesus. He acknowledged that Jesus existed. He was, he, was, he was impressed by Jesus' teachings. He comes to Jesus at night. Nicodemus didn't know the right questions to ask about what it took to have everlasting life. He didn't even know what to ask. Jesus knew what Nicodemus needed. He needed to be cleansed on the inside by the Holy Spirit and by the Word of God. He needed everlasting life. He needed the forgiveness of his sins. And Jesus said the way to have everlasting life is to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And those that believe have it, and those who do not believe do not have it. That is what he's saying in this passage. What damns people to hell is that they do not believe in Jesus Christ. And in verse 18, he says that they have already been judged. You're guilty and awaiting your sentence. And if you continue in unbelief, you will perish. Now, with the seriousness of this and the opportunity to come to Christ, the question could be asked, why do sinners reject Jesus? Why do sinners reject Christ? Why don't people believe upon him? And look, at, look at verse number 19. And this is the condemnation. That, the, that light, and we know Jesus was this light, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And so everyone who does evil hates the light and doesn't come to the light. Why? Because they're fearful that their actions, their lifestyle, their deeds are going to be exposed. And there's only one reason why people don't believe in Christ. One reason. And that is this. They love their sin. That is why. They love their sin. And everyone in this room, and many in this room are born again, and you are saved, and you have been forgiven of your sins, past, present, and future, because you have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But there was a time in your life and in my life where we did not come to the light, and we did not believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We didn't want to be around the light, and do you know why? Because we loved our sin. That's why. People don't want to come near Christ because he shines a light on their sin. He exposes their sin Sinners love sin. And we all, we all used to be dead in our sins and trespasses. We all used to be lovers of sin. It's not ignorance that keeps people from coming to the light. It's not an inability to think or reason. It's not a misunderstanding. Sinners prefer moral darkness. And so they resent the truth. They resent the word of God. They resent the body of Christ. They resent Christ's followers. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us that. He doesn't, nowhere in the Bible are we told, come to Jesus so that you can be made happy. And by the way, if you have a loved one that you care deeply for and they are, they are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, please don't tell them that lie. Come to Jesus and he'll make your life perfect. Are happy. That's not what the Bible says. 
Nor in the Bible are we told, come to Jesus and He'll give you a better life. Come to Jesus and, and, and all your problems will be solved. Or come to Jesus and He'll give you perfect health. Or come to Jesus and He'll make you healthy. Those are not, that is not what the Bible teaches. You see, if you have never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you will either seal your sentence because you've already been condemned. You will either seal your sentence by rejecting Christ because you love your sin. Or by the grace of God, you will run to the truth. You will run to the truth. And you'll say, oh God, please be merciful to me, a sinner. Please save my soul. Look at verse 21. But he that doeth truth, he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, made obvious that they are wrought in God. What is the difference between the unbeliever and the believer. And, and I could answer that with a, with a question. Why are you here today? Why are you here today? Why do you come week after week? An unbeliever who is dead in his sins and trespasses hates the light and loves his sin and loves darkness. That's what the Bible says. He loves darkness. I don't want to be exposed to the light. Ugh. I feel dirty. It, 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 makes, it riles me up. I'm frustrated. I hate it. I don't want to be around the light. Okay. What is the difference between an unbeliever and a believer? Because we as believers still sin, do we not? Yeah. More than we'd like to admit. The difference between an unbeliever and a believer is in the question, why are you here today? And the answer to that question is, you want the light. You love it. You love the light. Now, it convicts sometimes, and sometimes you walk out thinking, oh boy, I'm not on the right path. But you love the light. You love Christ. You love his word. You love his people. You love his people. And people who practice the truth are here because the light shines and reveals that what is going on in our lives is being done by God. He's saving my soul. I'm not the same person I used to be. Things I used to struggle with, I'm not struggling with them anymore, but there's still other struggles. But just like God delivered me from those things, he will deliver me from these things. You see, the light gives the believer, the child of God, assurance. It comforts our hearts. It encourages us in the race. It gives us security. It convicts us from time to time. And it gives us direction. And I will tell you that I need the light. And I love the light. And that's why you're here, because you love the light. We come to the light. We love the light. We welcome the communion with Christ, and there is no fear. The light actually reveals that we have complete acceptance with God and complete security, and we have joy, and we have protection, and we have love, the love of God. And the light tells us these things. And by the way, as we wrap up in just the next few minutes... I want to tell you something about Nicodemus. He came to Jesus by night, this particular night, a Pharisee and so self-righteous, not even knowing the right question to ask. But I want you to know there came a time in Nicodemus' life, and it wasn't this particular night, from all I can tell. There came a time in Nicodemus' life, life where he believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of his soul. Later on in the, in the Gospel of John, I think it's in chapter 7, I think, we find Nicodemus defending Jesus. 
And then in chapter 19, after Jesus has been crucified, there are two particular men that take Jesus' body off of the cross, and they prepare his body for burial to be laid to rest. And I don't believe it was by accident, by any means. I believe God in his omnipotence ordained it to be so. There were two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, preparing Jesus' body. They didn't know it but for the resurrection from the dead. I don't know where you're at here this morning. Have you ever believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul? Faith alone plus nothing. If I were to ask you this morning, you know that you're going to heaven when you die. Do you have everlasting life? What would your answer be? First John tells us this, He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Now I want you to look at verse 36 as we close, okay? And we'll be done here in verse 36. It says this, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. That's how you have Christ, the forgiveness of your sin, His righteousness and your sins taken away, everlasting life. By believing on the Son, you have everlasting life. But then notice these fearful words, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. You will face eternal death. And remember the verses we've read. You're condemned already where you sit this morning. I can say it this way. Hanging over the precipice of hell, waiting to draw your last breath. You're already condemned. There isn't any, it's not up for debate. If you haven't believed upon Christ, you're going to hell. There is no other way for me to put that. Look again at verse 36. Notice those words, believeth not, because this is an option. You have a choice. It comes from a Greek word that means disobedience. And the words, believeth not, literally mean a willful refusal. A willful refusal to comply. A willful refusal to believe. And again, I tell you, people are not in hell because they were not loved. People are not in hell because they sinned on this earth. People are in hell because they will not believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only reason. A willful Refusal to believe upon the Son. And he says, they shall not see life. Notice this, but the wrath of God, the wrath of Almighty God, abideth on him. Not just someday when they go to hell, but right now and forever, as long as they will not believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what that verse is saying. This is heavy, okay. Many of us in this room can rejoice that there was a day in our lives by the grace, of, grace and mercy of God that we said, Lord, will you please forgive me of my sin and save my soul? And he did. And you entrusted and I entrusted my life into the care of God Almighty and said, God, please save me. I cannot save myself. I don't deserve for you to save me. I've tried all these other things. I don't know where else to turn. God, would you save me? 
we, many of us can praise God that that's happened in our lives and we are the recipients of everlasting life. We ought to live like it. We have to say yes to the Holy Spirit and we ought to let God be glorified in our lives. But there may be someone in this room and you've never believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You acknowledge that he exists. You've heard a lot of things about him in the Bible. You know that you're a sinner. You've been trying awfully hard to save yourself. You're coming to church maybe. You're maybe reading the Bible. Maybe you're doing some other things. You're doing your best. But I want you to know something. Your best will never be enough to save your soul from death and hell. Salvation, the salvation of God is found only, 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 only in Jesus Christ. And the only way to have it is by believing upon him. And I'm talking about a childlike faith. You don't have to understand everything, but you need to know, you need to agree. You're a sinner, and God is holy. Your sins are need to be punished, and God is just. And you need to entrust your soul into, into the hands of Almighty God. And you can do that by praying and asking him to save you. You can do that. God, would you save me from my sin? Would you save me? Only you can save me. Would you save me? With every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around this morning,